All right, uh, right now we got an interview for you guys that I'm super excited about. Shepard Ferry's in the studio. Um, uh, I think it's fair to call you uh, the top uh, and certainly best known street artist in the country. Uh, and I, I don't know how you feel about that title, but I've now given it to you, whether you like it or dislike <laughs> it. Um, and you've got some, of course, some legendary work, Obey, uh, which I want to talk to you about in a second, uh, and uh, and the Hope uh, poster for Obama. Um, I'm curious about the backstory of that too. Uh, you're also working on a whole bunch of stuff now. Your book, Obey, Obey Supply and Demand, uh, The Art of Shepherd Ferries, back out. You got the uh, documentary Obey Giant on Hulu. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I was gonna say more important, just as important. Uh, no, probably more important to be fair, and I think you'd agree, is the Equal Justice Initiative, which is actually trying to seek justice in the country. Um, so it's a long intro to, hey, how you doing? I'm great, thanks <laughs> okay, for having great. me. Thanks for being here. Um, so uh, let's start at the beginning. Um, um, where'd you grow up? Uh, how did you get into art? Uh, did you always know that you were gonna do this? Uh, or did you think you were gonna be an accountant at some point? <laughs> well, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. And um, I like to draw from the time I was a little kid. But what really, I think, made me think art is gonna be my thing is when I got into skateboarding and punk rock. And then there was this do-it-yourself creative side of the culture. And all the art that I'd been doing was pretty traditional because that's all I was exposed to. But then with skateboarding and punk rock, there was a lot of stencil making, stickers, um, you know, m making homemade t-shirts. And, um, and then all the bands making flyers and promoting themselves. So, you know, that started to push me in a, in a more progressive direction, even though I still didn't necessarily see making homemade t-shirts and, and stickers as the, the same thing as trying to paint like uh, you know Michelangelo or something. But um, then I went to um, a year of art boarding school out here in, in um, Idlewild um, up in the mountains. But we went into LA and I saw an artist um, named Robbie Canal who did posters parodying Ronald Reagan. He did a lot of other leaders too, but I just happened to be in a school van driving around downtown LA and seeing these unflattering portraits of Reagan with the word Contra above and diction below. And I was listening to the Dead Kennedys, Black Flag, and that Reagan was a villain in 80s punk rock. So seeing this, um, it just, just struck me, I had an epiphany, this is what I want to do. It's got uh, social commentary, a sense of humor, it's well painted. So uh, yeah, it didn't, um, didn't crystallize for me for a few more years, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I interviewed Robbie too, and, uh, and it's great to see that, you, that he was your original inspiration. So that's pretty neat to connect that. So, um, so what's the first thing that you, you do on your own uh, that is along those lines? Well, I, when I was, um, a freshman at the Rhode Island School of Design, I started doing some posters that were, and t-shirts and stickers that were around um, issues of racism and control. Um, I had a stop racism poster, which was, you know, a little, little one dimensional. It was like a skinhead guy yelling at, um, I use Miles Davis's eyes, but you know, a very um, forlorn looking um, African American gentleman. And I mean, my heart was in the right place, but it was a little ham fisted, I think. Um, then I had a, a, a thing of a, a skateboarder um, being grabbed by the police, and it said, Prevent Police Boredom Skateboard. 
underneath it. <laughs> See, um, that's clever, okay. So, you know, because at the time there was the whole skateboarding's not a crime, but clearly the, the cops hadn't gotten that memo. Um, and then I, I had a question authority shirt, but it was really when I started making the Andre the Giant has a posse sticker, putting those in public space and then seeing all the varied reactions like a Rorschach test that I started to realize that art that that questions the control of public space is powerful. Even though I started off with a really silly thing that was just meant to be an inside joke with some skateboard friends, I saw the potential to evolve that into something. You know, something that's um, it's just disrupting the usual semiotics of consumption, etc. I mean, I think they came up with the term around then in the early 90s of culture jamming. Um, I didn't realize that was that was wasn't what I was doing in a real thoughtful way. But then when I saw how people reacted to it, I studied things like um, the Situationist International and the idea of the, the spectacle. Um, Jamie Reed and Malcolm McLaren, who worked with the Sex Pistols, who were my favorite group probably, had uh, you know really thought about those principles and how they would disrupt things with the Sex Pistols. And then also Heidegger's theory of phenomenology, the idea that we've become so numb to our surroundings that it takes unusual encounters to reawaken a sense of wonder to get us to analyze things more closely, question things. So as soon as I tapped into that, then uh, I was on my way to the Obey Project. See, that's really interesting. I saw um, some TV special about hypnosis. And the trick to hypnosis is getting, doing something totally out of the ordinary that puts people in a different frame of mind. And as you were describing that, it almost sounded like that. And, and so I wanna talk about it in the context of the Andre the Giant campaign. Mm -hmm. Because I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, what in the world is that? Right, <laughs> you can't help but ask, what is that? Yeah. Or as my dad would say, what is this? Right, <laughs> and why obey? And why Andre the Giant? And and I was a wrestling fan, and I was, and so I knew it was Andre, mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't know why. So let, let's talk about how it originated, and then what it became uh, to you and to others as it went along. I was uh, working at a skate shop the summer after my freshman year in college. Um, making 425 an hour and the crew of guys I, I skated with, we were all really getting into hip hop and, and posse was a, um, was a big word in hip hop, the Beastie Boys, Public Enemy, NWA, Ice-T, they were all using the word posse. So we're calling our crew our posse. And um, you know, hip hop had sort of become the new punk rock. Uh, then I was also subsidizing my meager income from the skate shop by making a lot of homemade t-shirts, things like The Misfits, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, The Clash. And I would take those into the skate shop when my boss wasn't there, put them on the rack. And then when they sold, I'd keep the money. <laughs> and then, um, and, and so a friend of mine wanted to learn how to make a stencil. So I looked through the Providence Journal and saw an ad for wrestling and said, oh, you gotta make a, make a stencil of Andre the Giant. And he said, Nah, that's stupid, man. So what are you talking about? Andre's posse is gonna be taken over. You and I will be the only ones that know we'll do this. When people ask, say, sorry, it's top secret, we can't tell you. And, um, and he was like, hi, yeah, that's funny. He tried to cut it with an X-Acto knife, got frustrated, I finished it. It was made in 10 minutes or less. And, um, but then just went to Kinko's and ran off some, some stickers on crack and peel, gave them to a few friends. But the next thing you know, people are coming up to me saying like, you the guy with those stickers. Can I can I get a couple? 
And, um, and then I saw a guy with a baseball hat with one with paint flakes on it. He peeled it off something. It's so strange that this thing's got this uh, mystery that's you know alluring. And um, and then I decided, well, you know, it's out there. I'm putting it at some skate spots, some clubs, stop signs. What if I actually make a real effort instead of just sort of doing it while I'm you know wandering home at night? Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, then it, it grew a little more. And about a year later, I decided to um, change uh, Buddy Cianci, the mayoral candidate's um, billboard around as, a, a, you know, excuse to do a prank, but also um, to fulfill an assignment for one of my illustration classes. And that uh, ended up on the news, in the newspaper, on the radio. And I realized, um, you know, when you go from a Three inch sticker to a billboard, it really changes um, things. The conversation gets a lot bigger and louder. Um, and uh, yeah, then then I was then I was hooked. The um, because I felt powerless for so many years, and all of a sudden, the idea that as you know a broke individual, I actually had the power to affect the conversation. It's like okay, I shouldn't squander this maybe with just like a silly wrestling reference. Maybe I should try to evolve this into something a little more meaningful. So a ton to ask there. First of all, on the billboard of the candidate, did you turn him into Andre the Giant or something? Yeah, yeah, it was Buddy Cianci facing um, you know, the, the public with his hand up saying, uh, Cianci never stopped caring about Providence. What I didn't know was that he had been removed from office. He had been mayor and had been removed from office for um, Beating up his uh, estranged wife's lover, who also was a city contractor, having the cops hold him down in his house while he urinated on him, put uh, cigars out on him, and um, so he had to, um, yeah, he had to resign and then was facing <laughs> criminal prosecution. But then when he got through all that, he came back and was like, "Sancy, he never stopped caring about Providence. Didn't care for." His wife or her lover so much, but but you know, <laughs> hey, it's Providence, you know. So uh, I uh, so so I actually didn't know the backstory, but what I accidentally did, I just thought it was a dumb billboard that didn't say anything about an issue, and um, and and was conveniently located by the school. So I put a, a, a sign in his hand that said "Join the Posse" and changed the head to Andre, and then put seven feet, four inches, 520 pounds on his lapel. But people saw that and they thought, oh, this artist is so, that who did this is so brilliant. They're making the comparison between Cianci, the brute, and Andre, the brute. And that was completely accidental. So, um, <laughs> you know, I um, was somewhat Trumpian. And then I'm just like bouncing around, not knowing what I'm doing and people accidentally liked it, but. Um, that's so that's so so interesting but but obviously the rest of your career indicates not trumpian well you know i i, I um i do you know i do learn you know yeah. some people don't learn no and and the other thing is that it's it's the idea and the effort and the initiative in the first place that gets rewarded and that initiative then is seen throughout the rest of your career as well so um then what when do you there's so much i want to ask you when do you then uh, morph Andre the Giant into Obey. That was a couple years later, and I saw the film They Live. Have you ever seen that film? No. It's a it's a um, John Carpenter film, and uh, in that film, coincidentally, Rowdy Roddy Piper, the yeah. former wrestler who also wrestled with Andre, some um, 
Uh, Finds finds these special glasses that when he puts them on, he can see that half the people, the authoritarians, um, are aliens. The ads say things like not vacation in, in Tahiti, but obey, consume, sleep, conform, watch television, marry and reproduce. And you know, uh, uh, symbolically, it was really powerful. It was a you know, it was a B movie, but with a profound concept that most people are too um, unaware of manipulation to address it consciously. And, and so, you know, watching that film, the word that stuck out to me as the thing that people do the most follow the path of least resistance subconsciously, but when, but when they're aware of it, when they're conscious of it, that they resist vigorously is obey. So I wanna crystallize that, I wanna pull it out of the ether the, the unseen hand of manipulation and make it the visible manipulation that you have to deal with. And did you attach it to Andre the Giant because uh, that had already had a life of its own? Exactly. Okay. An evolution. So I took Andre in a direction where I streamlined him so he's more like a big brother's watching you figure. So, that, you know, I loved Orwell and when I, uh, They Live was, was, you know, had. Um, for sure, connections to dystopian literature like Orwell or Ray Bradbury, and um, and also the set design was very similar to an artist who I loved um, named Barbara Kruger, who you've probably seen her work. Um, Your body is a battleground about reproductive rights, where it's a woman's face, positive, negative, split in half with a red bar with the white Futura type that says your body is a battleground, which is the same type style used in They Live and the same type style that I use for Obey. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm um, I, I wear my influences on my sleeve, um, and sometimes literally too. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know whether to love or not uh, your your story of selling T-shirts without your boss's permission, um, because it's awesome initiative, entrepreneurial, great spirit. Except uh, I run this place, and I don't want anybody getting ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, okay. You do obey and connect to the Andre the Giant, but how does that spring out of Providence and all over the country? Because I was um, very motivated to um, disseminate my work, and that was a combination of driving my beat up station wagon from Providence to Boston, New York, Philly, DC. I mean, all, at one point, all the way down to Florida and back using different routes both ways to cover more territory. Taking flights to San Francisco, um, San Diego, LA from the East Coast. But mostly, I think um, it was because I created sort of a, um, you know, like a punk rock network of people who were getting my stickers. Um, I would run ads in places like Slap Skateboard Magazine, Flipside Punk Magazine, um, Maximum Rock and Roll Punk Magazine. And I would have these funny ads um, that were sort of, you know, cryptic, but would say for stickers in the lowdown, send a self-addressed stamped envelope. And they were first coming to my art school PO box and then to my house. And I was getting, um, you know, starting off like one or two letters a week to, you know, like 20 letters every day. And I would send back um, my manifesto, which was not really a manifesto at first. It just started off as uh, a you know, a slightly condensed version of a paper I wrote about Heidegger and phenomenology and some things I'd witnessed, uh, social phenomena I'd witnessed around my sticker campaign. But it actually, um, when, when people got it, they felt like, okay, I intuitively responded to this, but now I have an, 
an intellectual rationale for it. And that makes, that's empowering to people. So I sent that, I sent a proof sheet, I sent stickers, and then I sent instructions on how to go to a copy shop and make your own stickers if you wanted to. So it became like a, a punk rock viral chain letter, you know, before internet viral memes. Super interesting. So when you're going up and down, are you putting stickers on like buildings and stop signs and stuff, or are you doing big billboard takeovers and stuff? Well, it started off with stencils, smaller posters, stickers, but then as um, the years went on, I um, I got more sophisticated in what I was doing, which still isn't very sophisticated, but um, sophisticated enough to um, go use a the, the blueprint copier to make larger things and figuring out percentages to get things to go up, tiled up bigger to take over billboards or you know sides of buildings. And um, I was convinced that if I, the smaller stuff is great, but the bigger stuff is what makes the, small, the smaller stuff feel um, meaningful to people. Because a lot of times people don't notice the smaller stuff until they see something bigger because that, you know, the effort of that endeavor is really, it's, it's visceral for people. And so um, I knew that I had to do all of it. And, you know, some, some friends of mine were like, wow, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're competing with Coca-Cola with this thing. Like, you know, you're as ubiquitous as those guys. And, um, you know, this was long before I read Naomi Klein's No Logo. And, you know, you could, you could point out the irony that I was doing sort of an anti-branding campaign, which then eventually I had products for. So it, it, um, it, it became something that um, I initially really didn't have any products for, but I was getting very far into debt doing it. And, um, and so I started to make some t-shirts for some friends and some, uh, some posters. I would print um, 100 posters on thin paper just to put up on the street and 100 on thick paper hypothetically to sell. But for years, no one bought those. They just stacked up in my studio and I gave them to people that would help me print and things like that. But, um, but you know, my idea was this sort of um, way of sustaining my creativity by having a, you know, a, a, a sales component but that was really driving attention for the, you know, the, the street art, the, you know, the ideas. Even if the idea of selling and then questioning consumption seemed a bit contradictory, I was willing to live uh, not being a trust fund kid with, uh, you know, wrestling with that contradiction. Yeah, it always comes back to wrestling. Uh, <laughs> and it's funny how we grow up the same and different. Uh, so I loved Andre the Giant and Rowdy Roddy Piper, even when he smashed the coconut over Snooka's head, which was so <laughs> wrong. Um, on the other hand, instead of liking punk, I like the Pointer Sisters, and uh, and I like Reagan. So, but don't hold it against me. I also evolved. Uh, <laughs> we wind up getting to a similar place. Um, but so, in your evolution. Um, I'm sure this is the question you probably get most often, but I want to ask it. I hope in a little bit more thoughtful way, understanding the contradictions and the ironies and all that. But the question is, okay, but when you take over somebody's billboard or you put it on somebody's building or you, you know, etc. Do you, do you feel bad about that? Are you supposed to feel bad that somebody else's property, that's somebody else's project, maybe even, mm-hmm. or? Yeah, just talk me through how you feel about that. Well, it definitely evolved on that because when I when I was younger and I was broke, and I thought um, the 
rest of the world is doing great and just out to ruin my life and make me miserable. Um, <laughs> I didn't feel like um, I had any obligation to be courteous to anyone. I felt like it was me against the world. Um, my, you know, my, my thinking on that shifted, um, and like when I changed around Cianci's billboard, my excuse was, um, it's in my right of way and it's annoying. Um, I don't think that way now. Um, you know, I don't want to cost anyone money, um, and that that applies to buildings as well. I'm always trying to put my work on either public property where I can say, I'm, "Hey, I'm a taxpayer also," and this is, uh, you know, this is taxpayer space, um, or abandoned property where I don't feel like. A poster on a boarded up window or something that's already got a lot of graffiti on it and is dilapidated where it's it's going to um, really cause damage. And, and so, you know, the idea that public space can be used in a positive way um, for, you know, empowering people who don't have deep pockets um, without, without being destructive, uh, you know, that's sometimes that's threading the needle, but it's what I'm striving for all the time. And I try to now set a strong example for younger people who are, are street artists that there is sort of a code of ethics to the way I apply my stuff. Um, you know, in the late 90s, I did take over several Sprite Obey Your Thirst billboards where I just covered your thirst up with one of my icon mm -hmm. faces. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, then I realized that was probably a lot of money's worth of adverts, Sprite advertising, and I have no, I have no, um, you know, emotional connection to Sprite. But whether it's the people who have to go out and replace the billboard, or it's somebody at, at Sprite who um, gets yelled at because they made um, the design of that billboard too alluring for a punk like me, um, I just started to think about how it would impact others. So I've taken over a lot of billboards, but almost all of them since then have been blank. Hmm, that's interesting. So how would you feel about someone who's coming up who says, screw your ethics, I'm gonna do it my way? Well, um, what I would say to them is, if you wanna have a long career, I think it's a lot smarter to be able to stand behind your actions once you're um, pulled out of the shadows. Because it eventually happens to everybody. I've been arrested 18 times. Um, everybody thinks they're invincible until they realize they're not. Um, mm -hmm. The, uh, you know, the, the. I, I guess, um, you know, also, like, okay, who are your real enemies? What's the point you're trying to make? I now try to be very specific about who. I'm willing to go up against and why, and and I want to I want to do that thoughtfully. And you know, some people are. They're not there yet, and that's maybe they're never going to be there. Um, so I just say to them, okay, you know, you're um, you're in control of your own destiny, and, um, and and but you know, be prepared for the consequences if you uh, if you throw the middle finger up at everybody. Got you. And you just used a phrase that was interesting. So you said you got to know who your enemies are. Um, so who are your enemies? Um, any purveyors of injustice, and that's whether it's um, you know racial, environmental. Um, you know, it, it, I'm working on so many different issues. I'm working on um, xenophobia, racism, sexism, 
environmental destruction, campaign finance reform, I think is really important. We need to minimize the influence of corporations that undermines democracy. There's some, just anybody that's, they're putting themselves ahead of the greater public good. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, campaign finance reform, obviously, got to get money out of politics, otherwise we're doomed. It's, but I feel like um, so that's a huge, huge part of it. But the part that people don't talk about that much is the corporate takeover. Um, it's not just uh, rich folks uh, who have money who donate to politicians and want lower taxes. It's that corporations have gotten their tentacles into almost everything we do. Give me your take on that. Is there, other than obey, is there anything we can do to fight back? What's your take on that? Well, I mean, we have a huge amount of power in how we spend our money. So knowing what companies we support and which ones we don't. People who um, are short on funds saying, well, I have to go to Walmart. Like, but you're, you're helping to perpetuate a cycle which means that those Walmart employees that don't get full time and don't get benefits, um, you know, you're, what you're doing is you're making sure that by not boycotting them, that the message isn't sent to them that they need to change their behavior. Um, you know, there, there's so a vote. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't vote. Um, you know, when you look at millennials are the biggest voting or I think it's 18 to 29 is the biggest voting block now that that voted in the smallest numbers percentage wise. Um, yeah, I, I think that when, even though the uh, it was um, not Harvard, it was uh, Princeton, the Princeton study that showed yeah. that effectively democracy is um, uh, really not functioning anymore. Um, that you know it's it's what corporate and special interests want. But I actually think if a higher percentage of people voted, that might that might shift more in the right direction. It's still going to be corrupted a good bit by all that influence. Um, but yeah, I mean, spending and and, and voting um, would make a really big difference. So I, I like that philosophy because it turns consumption in some ways against them. It weaponizes the thing that the corporations use to control folks. So. Okay, they do it as a form of control, but you could do it as a form of controlling them. Exactly, and I mean, most of the things that we buy, um, you know, maybe other than if you've got a gas car, you need gasoline, you need groceries, but a lot of a lot of the things that we buy are discretionary. And um, you know, if you don't like aspects of how uh, Apple's doing its thing, you don't have to buy an iPhone, Um, Mm -hmm. and, and. you know, I'm not. I'm not trying to pick on anyone specific here, but it's, yeah. um, you know, people I, I think are confused about um, what they need and what they just want. And um, yeah. and if you have the willingness to complain about the way things are, but not the willingness to research who's doing what and how you could, um, yeah, maybe uh, maybe change their habits with by changing your own habits. Um, then you know it. That's that's a problem. My wife and I, you know, before 2016, started this initiative called Make America Smart Again. And the whole mm-hmm. idea was just just take a minute to learn about the issues that affect you. Mm-hmm. But well, uh, bless your heart. <laughs> Watch more Young Turks. Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> join Wolfpack. Get money out of politics. Um, so why is a kid in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, who is white? Uh, I don't know if you know that. 
Um, <laughs> care so much about xenophobia and racism, etc. Like, how did that thought get into your head, especially growing up back then? Probably because I am from there, and um, my my grandfather was uh, president of a small college in Rock Hill, South Carolina, called Winthrop, and uh, he they were the second school to willingly um, implement the um, you know uh, non segregation in 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 school. Um, and my, you know, my my grandfather wrote about the residual effects of Jim Crow, but I really didn't know any of that. It was mostly just my parents. My parents, I asked my parents, why is it that everybody that lives on that side of the town is poor and black, and this side is, you know, not as poor and white? And um, you know, so they they tried to delicately explain to me the um, legacy of slavery, and um, it, you know, and all the all the things that were ongoing. Um, and that you know that made a difference to me. And then I got into um, I got into a lot of black music. I got into Bob Marley. I got into Public Enemy, Run DMC, um, Boogie Down Productions, N.W.A. And um, you know, Public Enemy was probably the most positive influence because they were talking about Malcolm X, about the Black Panthers. And then you know, I read Bobby Seale's Seize the Time. But um, I just think that. Racism and xenophobia are um, it—they're it, based on people's insecurity and an unwillingness to admit vulnerability. So, you, so you know, you'd rather scapegoat instead. And I—I'd I, like for us to all say, like, "Hey, the Do- I'm paraphrasing the Dalai Lama. We have a lot more in common." Um, to bond over than we than differences that we should be arguing over. Yet we're spending all this time bickering over the differences. Um, because I think if people got past racism, xenophobia, and sexism, they'd actually look at where the real abuses of power are. You know, so much of it goes back to that uh, the movie you were talking about. In at least as I'm, you know, hearing your life story, because you know I was just in Charleston, South Carolina, and. Uh, there's all of these incredible um, things like the slave mart that's in the yeah. middle of town. Mm-hmm. And if you want, you can go and see this is how they bought and sold human beings. And yeah. it's amazing and it's jarring. And then you can go to a plantation and you can see how folks lived and the different rules and how they had to obey. Yeah. And uh, you almost have to try not to see it. And I think that a lot of people try really hard not to see things. Mm-hmm. So. Like, like in the movie you're describing, like, so here's what the aliens see, here's what you see. But it's true for us now a lot, and then a lot of times here's what the right wing sees, and here's what the left wing sees. Yeah. And even though it's the same thing, we're seeing it completely differently. And it is a hell of a thing to, to bridge. In a sense, when you give me the Dalai Lama quote, it sounds like you want to bridge it, and I do too. But, and again, there's so many similarities, just coincidentally similarities. Earlier today, I was talking on the show about how Public Enemy was such a huge influence. The Pointer Sisters and Public Enemy, (laughs) and and Run DMC, and all those guys that I used to listen to. But I said Public Enemy was the top because it opened up my mind and and it let me see it let me see a different perspective. On the other hand, I want to fight the bad guys, and you talk about fighting the bad guys. So how do we balance out attacking, for example, let's just keep it real. Let's call it what it is, attacking the right wing and saying that's not right and I'm gonna fight you. And saying, on the other hand, I'd like to build a bridge so we could actually 
see the same billboard, if you will. Well, you know, um, I've I've utilized both strategies, and um, it's very cathartic to just rage and and say you're a villain, screw you. Um, and, and and I've done that, and I you know, and I get a nice pat on the back from like-minded peers, and that you know that that can be great. That can actually, when you're feeling terrible, that can be really helpful. But that doesn't from from a just you know, a therapy standpoint, but it actually doesn't solve the problem. So, um, what I've been doing more recently, uh, a lot of times, is trying to find something universal in what I'm putting out, and then there's a subtext of me. You know, sometimes it's humorous, sometimes it's um, you know it, it, subversive, but there there's something that it seduces the viewer. Hopefully, that we can all that's common ground. And then says, "But you're not getting it quite right." And um, you know, for, for example, something that a lot of the new work that I put in my damage show that was dealing with um, sexism and um, racism, the the all, you know all the stats about police frisking and shooting unarmed African Americans and the bias in uh, sentencing. Um, you know that you were drawn in to read that text by a very, uh, uh, I think, human appealing portrait of a woman. Um, so that's so I've been I've been trying this sort of two pronged approach um, with something like the We the People series. The you know ra- uh, the Trump calling Latinos rapists and Muslims terrorists and. You know, on down the line, um, you know, uh, w- women have low IQs. Uh, you know, these sorts of things. Um, what I felt um, with a lot leading up to the to the women's march uh, around the inauguration was that everything's so polarized right now that I need to make some images that just sort of um, are so positive and should be universally positive. That if you try to find fault with them, you're really outing yourself as a bigot. Hmm, and um, you know, the give them enough rope strategy. I, mm-hmm. I actually don't want to give them any more rope. They've already had too much rope. <laughs> yeah, yeah years, I agree. But, agree. Um, but anyway, um, is that one right there, uh, Shepard? Uh, like that's from We the People campaign. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, and then using some some symbols like the American flag um, to because why should why should the American flag be hijacked by the right wing when really, to me, the flag is is a symbol of the melting pot of you know diverse ideas, diverse backgrounds, ethnicities, religions, and um, and so uh, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, is not. To me, uh, what should you know always define the American flag? Everyone's equal, equally American. Yeah, so that's why uh, when we do the Young Turks regularly, we have the American flag behind us because that's not their flag; that's our flag. Right. So it's the flag that unifies. So sometimes people say, "Oh, Confederate flag," you guys don't understand. No, no, I understand. The Confederate flag was flown by uh, the the Confederacy into battle. Uh, the flag on the opposite side of that battle. Was the American flag, 
Right. Okay. Yeah. And and so and we were called the union. Now I wasn't here, and my ancestors weren't here, but it's we, it's we, because when I became a citizen, that's what I adopted, and I adopted this heritage. And yes, some the heritage has some awful parts to it. And yes, the heritage has some wonderful parts to it. And we could emphasize those and not let them hijack the flag, the constitution yeah. and, and, and America overall. Because America does have some great parts that, that we could use. Like, and some of it was created for a marketing campaign, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but you know what we could do? Okay, kind of along the lines of what you're saying, we can co-opt the marketing campaign. Like we can make it our own and hijack it and say, no, that's ours now. It's kind of how you did it with the billboards. <laughs> well, the, the you know um, symbols can can be used to manipulate. They can um, they can make people lazy, but they also have have power. And I think to uh, to accept that that's a huge part of sort of our our language of communication. And uh, for me, try to um, redefine things in a more positive direction when when possible, or Point out how they're tools of manipulation at other times. You know that's uh, that you know that's just part of what I do as a visual artist. But um, you know some people would would rather say, um, you know let's not let's not define things by this or that. But it's uh, that's just how we are as 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 human beings. We want to put things in categories, label things, use symbols around things. And so you know I'm constantly playing with that. Um, you know sometimes trying to. For example, the American flag say this should actually be a symbol of diversity. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things are coded. We know that, you know, yeah. it's not a, you know, the the I'm, I have white pride now. Not I'm, I hate all other races. You know, it's right, right, shifts. Right. People get smart about how they. Well, they were uh, until Trump came along, and he's like, no, no, I meant I hate other races. Right. right. And people are like, oh wait, oh yeah, that's me too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but I want to go back to we the people because I'm seeing those posters everywhere. I'm seeing them at the protests. So, mm -hmm. what's the genesis of that? Well, I worked with um, a friend of mine, photographer Aaron Huey, who started a. a, a Foundation called Amplifier. He and I had done a lot of work around Native American rights for a thing, an initiative called Honor the Treaties. He spent a lot of time documenting the Lakota and the Pine Ridge Reservation, and came to me and said, "You know, I'd love it if you'd make some illustrations based on my pieces." And I think that was a great initiative, but he found it difficult to be. A white guy doing that um, because he was, uh, you know, for better or worse, accused of being a, a, you know, a white savior. And um, I think he was trying to do good work. But we all know that identity politics are very tricky. And, um, but he wanted, you know, he really cares about social justice and people. So he wanted to transition to doing something else. And when Trump was elected, he decided. Uh, we need to work on some stuff. We also worked with several other artists um, uh, um, and photographers, and um, you know it was actually a very diverse group. I was probably the best known artist in the group, but um, a woman named Jessica Sabagal did some posters. Ernesto Urena did some posters. Um, the photographers for each subject were. Um, it was a Latina photographer who shot the Latina. I illustrated. A, uh, a Muslim photographer who shot the Muslim woman I illustrated, mm -hmm. um, etc. And um, you know, the, the, we didn't expect to get a lot of um, traction for the campaign just because things had been so 
divided and hostile, but I think it was the thing that people were looking for, some bit of positive hope in that moment. And you know, I've done the whole hope thing before. Yeah. So I should have known it was a winning formula. No, I mean, I, I, you know, that was probably after Trump was elected is probably the worst I've felt maybe in my life. But I also felt like I need to do whatever I can. So working with Aaron on those images, we did a Kickstarter and it's the, it was the most supported art Kickstarter ever. And, and then the money raised, took out at, we took out ads in USA Today, um, Washington Post, New York Times, and, and printed posters that were disseminated at the marches in LA, DC, and, and other places. And, uh, and then continued to print posters for, for dissemination. And you know, there was, uh, you know, there, the funds from that Kickstarter drive are still helping to pay for new initiatives. I'm learning all these mysteries one by one as we go through the interview. So let's, uh, let's get to Obama then. You mentioned uh, the hope poster that everybody knows. So how did that come about? And I, it wasn't originally hope underneath, right? It was progress? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I had done a lot of work that was pushing back against the Iraq war, um, the Patriot Act, the Bush agenda, basically. And then when Obama uh, spoke at the, D, at the DNC in 2004, I was, I was impressed with his oratory skills mm-hmm. and, um, and started to look at some of his policy positions and saw that he had opposed the Iraq war, which was a very unpopular position at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, looked at him talking about green jobs, green economy, reducing the power of lobbyists, universal health care, um, environmental raising environmental standards, things like that. Um, I thought, okay, I, um, if, I, if I'm willing to oppose Bush, um, you know, I should be willing to support this guy. And um, I'd never really done anything for a mainstream candidate. And, and uh, in fact, my whole brand really was rebellion. But, mm-hmm. but you know, when I, when I saw a lot of Obama's positions as what I saw at the time to be kind of the antithesis of Bush's positions, whether it worked out in, in application when he was in office like that or not, um, I thought I should support this guy vigorously. But I was, I had just done a big art show in New York called E Pluribus Venom. Well, that's fun. And, okay. and, <laughs> and, um, and I thought there's the possibility that I'm going to be too controversial for Obama to be interested in, in my endorsement. You know, he had sort of brushed off Farrakhan's endorsement. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not comparing myself to Farrakhan, but yeah, you know, I know how awkward it is for politicians when yeah. somebody that's too controversial is like, hey, I love you, man. Um, I wouldn't know anything about that. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, so I, um, I had a friend who knew some people in the Obama campaign. And first of all, I'll, I just wanted permission to create a poster in support of Obama that I would do on my own. And uh, that was a guy named Yossi Sirjan. He got the yes back. Obama had seen what I'd done around the 2004 election. I'd done some stuff with punk voter and some anti-Bush stuff. And he liked it and said, yeah, tell him to go ahead. So I illustrated the the Hope poster. Um, It initially said progress underneath. I put um, 350 up for sale on my website made 350 to put up on the street and then used the money from the first 350 to print 10,000 offset prints which were just given away. And that was um that was a few days after the Iowa 
caucus. And um, so um, all of a sudden, Obama went from, when I was talking to people about doing this special, they were like, why bother? Hillary juggernaut's gonna crush him. Like, don't, yeah. I said, well, if I'm gonna do it, I need to do it now. I wanna you know, be helpful as soon as possible. Um, but you know, then all of a sudden, when he wins Iowa, People go, whoa, hey, this guy, you know, maybe he has a chance. And that just happened to be timed when I put the image free download up on my website, gave the Oprah rally for Obama in LA 10,000 posters. And then Obama ends up on a video pointing to the poster saying, I really love this poster. Um, and, uh, and then it became this viral thing I didn't expect. But the interesting thing was the first posters were said progress. But then I got the, you know, the communication from the campaign that was sort of, they didn't say these exact words, but you know, progress is a little too close to progressive, which is a little close to Marxist. Ay, ay, ay. You know what I mean? So it was like- <laughs> Which was a sign of things to come. <laughs> yeah, so let's, you know, let, let's, use, uh, let's use hope or change. And, um, but hope and change were both things that simple, um, you know, not, not, um, you know, kind of dumb, easy words, but also when people feel hopeless, I think that simple things like that matter. So I was cool with that. Yeah, a quick side comment is that I, to give you a sense of how little the mainstream media knows and they keep insisting, like to, to, again, talking about the alternate realities that people see. How many times has the mainstream media said that Hillary Clinton is invincible? <laughs> Come to find out that it's not the case. And as I kept screaming all the way from 2007 through 2016, she is not invincible. I've seen her get defeated several times, right? right? Yeah. And they're like, ah, you're the crazy one, right? So uh, now Obama, you, you do that poster, it works great, wonderful. Um, after eight years, what was your sense? Well, my, my feelings were very mixed about, about Obama. Um, you know, on the one hand, I, I do think he's a very high quality human being. He's a classy guy. Um, I've met him a few times and I think I'm a reasonable judge of character. Um, and my, our family was actually in the White House the day after the election. I think he was assuming that it was gonna be a day of celebration um, and it ended up being a much darker day, but um, he was, Funny, composed, generous, dignified, thoughtful, everything you would want from somebody in their worst moment, which that has to have been one of his worst moments. And he, he was keeping it together a lot better than I could. Day after um, the Trump election. The day after the Trump election, yeah. Um, but, you know, um, Obama was sabotaged by the Republicans, but I think he, he suffered from that, you know, the curse that many politicians do, which is, they want to be liked, and so he starts backpedaling, where you know the the squeaky wheels he attended to, rather than saying you're never going to agree with me anyway. So sit over on the sides and whine. That's fine, and we'll let the adults handle some business over here. Um, you know things like defending domestic spying when that all came out, and um, you know there were a lot of deportations under Obama. There, um, the, the the drone. I think drones are basically uh, um, a tool of terrorism that we're using. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, can't support that. You know, I can't. I can't. You know, if, if given the choice, okay, it's either 
put troops on the ground and start another war or have drones. I don't like that choice. I'd probably choose drones, but I'd rather neither. Can, can the choice be neither? Yeah, it can. Uh, we're just choosing not to have it be neither. Right. Um, but many people don't position it that way. They, you know, many politicians position it as you have to choose one or the other. Yeah. No, we don't. <laughs> well, we refuse to obey. So let's talk about the Equal Justice Initiative. So what is that? You're working on it now, what is it? Yeah, so um, there's a, a lawyer named Brian Stevenson who um, he wrote a book called Just Mercy. He's done a lot of basically about the legacy of slavery. He is um, He's opening a museum in Montgomery, Alabama that is looking at the legacy of slavery, uh, slavery, uh, Jim Crow, segregation, mass incarceration, right up to the moment. And what he's saying is that um, this isn't about opening old wounds, it's about acknowledging wounds and helping them heal. That uh, until you know white people face up, and he's looking at the model of what's happened in um, South Africa, acknowledging apartheid, what's happened in Germany, acknowledging um, the you know the, the Holocaust um, that we really haven't done that about slavery yet in the United States. And the great thing is he is um, he's a healer. He's not an antagonist, but he's somebody that says like we need group therapy, and mm-hmm. um, that's what he's going for. But he asked me to design um, the invitation to the opening of of the museum. And uh, they're gonna create shirts and uh, posters. They're gonna be free giveaway posters. But you know, it's amazing. Um, John Legend, Oprah, a bunch of great people are gonna be there. And I, I helped to create the, you know, the identity for the launch. Um, and I'm sure somebody's gonna say, you know, they should have had um, a black guy do it. And um, that might be true that symbolically it would have been great for a black guy to do it. But I, I also think that symbolically to show that you know we're we're not we're we're like-minded partners here we're allies is really is really important and you know i'm um i'm always if i'm asked to do something for a cause like this and i have the time i i want to do it cuz i'm an ally yeah so let's talk about the goal of this and then that'll get us to a conversation about goals overall um so what's the ideal scenario for the equal justice initiative what 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 I don't know that there's like for example Wolfpack get money out of politics. There's a very specific goal yeah. to get an amendment, right? That gets money out of politics. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that it, this needs that specific a goal, but has there been a discussion about hey, this would be great if we could get this done? Well, the goal um, the goal is to create an an awareness of the systemic bias, uh, create empathy in people that experience it because. Always looking at um, anyone tangled up in the criminal justice system as other, especially if they're non-white, is really is really problematic for people getting true justice. And um, so, Brian is doing a lot of things around um, defending people. Um, he's gotten a lot of people off death row who were. Um, you know, wrongly convicted. So he's, uh, he's an, you know, an, innoc- an innocence project esque thing he's been doing for years and years and years. But I think that in doing that, 
seeing all the evidence of bias, he wanted to go bigger picture with it. And I think I think that you know the idea is to um, have us as a nation evolve towards greater sensitivity that prevents things from happening as frequently like unarmed black or Latino men being being killed by the police on such a regular basis. Right, um, in a sense, uh, you going to the billboards was the bigger picture. <laughs> so <laughs> some symbolism sure. in that too. Yeah. Uh, so you're also doing Stop the Violence, um, so uh, what is that about? Well, I've done, I've done a lot around um, gun obsession, our gun culture in the United mm-hmm. States. And um, it's probably, the, it's probably it, the issue I get the most hostile feedback on. Um, but especially with March for Our Lives happening and seeing all the amazing, impassioned, eloquent speeches given by the Parkland, uh, you know, the, the students, it's, you know, it, to me, it was an important moment to create some work that could be used as downloads, posters, and um, you know, and the the I just want fewer people to be killed by guns. Um, and you know how we get there. There are a lot of different paths to get there. Um, but the interesting thing is, um, everyone who loves guns, like the way they, I, I you know, I. I really think it's it's ir- as irrational as um, if you told a guy you're going to take his gun that you were going to neuter him at the same time for certain people, um, some women too. So whatever the female castration thing is, but um, yeah, it, it's it's an emotional thing um, that is very it's very hard to get those gun lovers to think rationally about the issue. You tell them, well, look at these countries in Europe where. There are far few fewer deaths. They say, "Oh yeah, well that's that's because they're all just um, taking box trucks and running people down or using knives." And you can't. You, it's just not true. But they right, say it's not. Right. Yeah, it's not. It's not true. But um, but you know, a lot of times, even if I feel like I'm, you know, maybe spitting into the wind with things I'm doing, um, from a maybe from a from a legislative standpoint, I don't know what it's going to achieve legislatively. I think that. Having the courage to, when it's so unpopular, to to say, you know what, I, I don't think we all need guns. I think it actually takes a lot more courage to have to use your brain and use your words to solve problems. Um, that if I'm willing to say that, then other people who've been intimidated and on the sidelines might have the courage to join the conversation, and that can move the needle. Yeah, well, this is the part where I get a little antagonistic with the other side. Because I think that the gun for them it has become a part of their identity, and whenever you touch anyone's identity, that's when they get really, really upset and mm-hmm. irrational, etc. And and look, that could, the identity issue could apply to both sides yeah. and in different ways. And you know, I don't the whole phallic thing, and <laughs> I get it, I get it, but I don't think that's really what's driving them. But so what's which part is antagonistic? I think that the conservative mind. Is more centered around fear. So, and there have been studies that show, literally, have a larger amygdala in some cases. Uh, and but then the culture revolves in some places around that fear, 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 fear of the others, fear of the Muslims and the Mexicans and 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 people that don't look like you. And if your whole 
drive is around fear, then what is the one product you're desperately going to cling to? Guns. Right. And uh, you know, it's it's kind of it's it, it's wrapped in an American flag because of the Second Amendment, not taking into account that you know the Second Amendment was written when um, there was no standing army and you needed the ability to have a militia in case the British came back real quick. Um, yeah. And uh, and you could load you know one shot a minute. Um, it's just a different thing. And when people say, oh, you can't change it, it's like, it's already changed. It's an amendment. Look up the definition of amendment. <laughs> so yeah, I, I often talk about how the founding fathers were revolutionaries, and hence they built revolution into the document. And those are called amendments. So in, in, instead of picking up a musket, you pick up a, a, a ballot or whatever it takes to, to get an amendment. Uh, so uh, I, I, I couldn't agree with more with you. Besides which, the second amendment, as you say, it says, for a well-regulated militia, we don't actually have to change it. You're not a well-regulated militia. You yeah. just aren't, and apparently <laughs> have trouble reading. So that's right. me getting antagonistic again. Okay, so, but anyways, um, I, I want to go through some of the other stuff. Uh, your book, uh, Obey Supply and Demand, that has your artwork in it. I get that, right? So, yep. so Obey Giant, the movie, the documentary that we talked about, that's on Hulu. Mm -hmm. What's in that? Well, that's pretty much the story of my life, uh, you know, up until this past November when it, when it aired. But um, it's made by a guy named James Mole, who is a great documentary filmmaker. He won an Academy Award for a film called Last Days about the end of the Holocaust and the discovery of, of Auschwitz. It's a really very heavy film, but um, it uh, it's it's really just the story of my my art and my life and uh, a lot of the you know the struggles and successes and you know everything in between my relationship with my wife um i i think it turned out really well and a lot of people know bits and pieces of my story but you know if you're willing to spend an hour and a half um you get a pretty good understanding of of you know what's been going on with me what drives me and what art i've made right and by the way the website is obeygiant.com that's your website yeah. Uh, obviously, Hulu has a documentary, but all the links that we talked about will be in the description box so you can click on them if you're late watching later on YouTube or in the comment section on Facebook. So, um, so to finish, if you had a goal, right, for your career, um, what would it be? It's funny, I, I, I guess you're always moving the goal line, right? I, um, I mean, I've surpassed uh, all almost all my goals, but I'm a very restless, dissatisfied person, not in the moment. I mean, when I take a deep breath, I know how fortunate I am. But um, I, think my, I think my goal is to just be able to keep creating and using, using my voice and being able to survive financially. I mean, that's, that's actually miraculous. Most people cannot do that. So I feel like as long as I can keep doing that, um, you know, I take um, the fact that I have an audience very seriously. I, you know, I, I, I try to be thoughtful about the things I'm doing, but um, you know, I'm not. Uh, I can't always predict the future. It's interesting to be, um, but blamed that some people supported Obama and then didn't like the result, and they were like, "I liked your poster." It's because of that. But um, so, you know, I'm going to be as thoughtful about everything I do um, with the knowledge I have up to that point as I can be, and uh, you know, try to be someone just just making art that's both. Um, Hopefully, visually appealing, but also, you know, uh, creating a conversation that wouldn't 
happen otherwise and move things in a good direction. You know, my, my role models are Bob Marley, Public Enemy, The Clash, The Dead Kennedys, Rage Against the Machine, and uh, you know, and, and then a few visual artists too. And uh, I just like to be able to keep pushing forward with that. Makes sense. All right, Shepard Ferry, thank you so yeah, much for joining us. So really much. appreciate it.